0: On August 16, 1977, 45 years ago, Elvis Presley died at age 42. The autopsy found eight different drugs in his body. Just seven years earlier, Presley was with Richard Nixon in the Oval Office to offer his assistance in fighting the war on drugs. He asked for a special agent badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. A copy of the photo of President Nixon and Elvis on that occasion is the most requested from the National Archives. Our guest, cultural journalist Alana Nash, has spent a lot of her professional life telling the story of Elvis and his well-known manager, Colonel Tom Parker. She reveals that the colonel was not an American and wasn't originally named Tom Parker. Alana Nash, in your book, The Colonel, which was published a lot of years ago, you do have an afterwards for 2022, and I just want to read the first sentence. In my 45 years of writing about Elvis Presley and Tom Parker, I have learned one essential truth. The saga continues and will always continue to surprise. Why did you say that?
1: Oh, you know, through my years of researching and writing about Elvis, so many things that seemed ludicrous on the face of it, later turned out to be true. And the the afterword to the colonel contains a document that I couldn't find when I was researching my book in the late 90s and the early 2000s, but you know, the internet is a very different animal today than it was then, and my friend Tony Stutchberry in England, who's a devoted Elvis researcher, Found this document. it is a Holland America line document that shows that Andreas Cornelis van Kerk, which is really the colonel's Dutch name, he was a Dutch citizen, was deported on one of his early att- attempts to assimilate into America, came over on a, probably came over as a stowaway, was discovered on board, and was promptly sent home when they docked in New York.
0: When you wrote The Colonel, where was it in the number of books that you've written on Elvis? Was it before or after your first book on Elvis?
1: Oh, it was after. I wrote a little book uh, in the 80s um, with a Presley associate named Alan Fortas. And from there, I I did a big doorstop of a book with three other of the Presley associates uh, known as the Memphis Mafia. And then uh, when I was researching that book, I really wanted to have Colonel Parker be part of it because his life was very mysterious. And the way he had run Elvis's career had a lot of big holes in it. Like, why did he do that? And he also had been uh, caught up in legal trouble with the state of Tennessee and the, the Presley estate. Uh, in which he was forced to, to give up any rights to the Presley estate and, and royalties. So I thought, wow, it would be great to have him be part of this book and explain all of this. And so I went to Las Vegas to try to find him. And I'm getting ahead of myself now. But when he died, I, I knew him. Well, I had three meetings with him from 92 to 94. And when he died, I, I you know, he was he's a very controversial figure. Um, people are polarized about him whether he's a good person or a horrible person and when he died i i honestly i heard it and i got tears in my eyes and i thought gosh you know what a character bigger than life and we'll never know his story we'll never know it and my agent said well Elena, you know you have to write that book and i said oh my gosh i think it's an ungettable story i just don't think i can do it but then i felt compelled to try to get it and i spent six years on it so um It was actually my third Elvis book, third out of four. I've done four books on Elvis.
0: As you know, C-SPAN is a political network covering politics and policy. And I'm sure people are saying to themselves right now, why in the world is he interviewing this woman about Elvis Presley? Uh, (laughs) I mean, I've been to Graceland. I've uh, seen the little bottles of so-called Elvis sweat. Uh, I know the hysterics and all that. But behind all that it seemed when I looked at all of your work that you've done, not only on Elvis Presley, but on Dolly Parton and uh, many, many others, that there's a story behind this, a cultural story. And you're a serious journalist, Columbia graduate. Uh, How did you ever get into this side of journalism?
1: Oh, I think it started really when I was six. I was born in 1950. I was born on August 16th, 1950. And that's a date that Elvis fans will recognize he died on August 16th, 1977. So yesterday was the 45th anniversary of his death. And when I was six, a month after I turned six, he appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And I was very familiar with his photographs and his records, but I'd never actually seen him move before. And my older sister and I sat in rapt attention and anticipation on the floor in front of one of those big chubby cabinet televisions waiting for Elvis' first appearance on Ed Sullivan. And, you know, 60 million people joined us, or roughly 80% of all the people who were watching television. And that appearance was seismic, culturally seismic, and personally seismic. I took one look at him, and I didn't know what he was doing exactly. I didn't know where that sound was coming from or what those moves really (laughs) meant. But I knew I wanted a whole lot more of it. And the world changed that evening. The the teenagers were in charge.
0: As you also know that the world has changed completely because there were only a couple of television programs available. I was back in those days old enough to watch one television station in my little hometown. And the world has changed dramatically. But tell the world about the Ed Sullivan show. What was it? What did it look like? What was he like?
1: Well, he was a very stiff character who held his body stiffly. He was an impresario. But if if you were on the Ed Sullivan show, it was a variety show. He had all kinds of performers from jugglers to singers to uh, mimics or mimes or uh, ventriloquists. I mean, you name it. But to, to be on the Ed Sullivan show, you had arrived. And so he was the quintessential establishment character. And for elvis presley to have appeared on them and he, he was really personally repulsed by elvis when he saw him on earlier television appearances such, such as steve allen the steve allen show or the milton burl show or on the stage show which is the dorsey brothers show but he was forced to have elvis on because he was so popular and so to have his stamp of approval uh meant a great deal to elvis and the colonel but really to have him on there uh, he made three three appearances um the world went from black and white to technicolor that night because everything about American culture, which filtered out into the rest of the world, changed.
0: What were the rules back then, and and how much did CBS have uh, a role in deciding that you couldn't see Elvis below the waist?
1: Well, that's a really good question. You know, the first time that Elvis was on the show, uh, Ed Sullivan was not there. Charles Lawton was a guest host. And when we saw Elvis on there after that, on one appearance, he was filmed only from the waist up. I think that was really not so much a CBS censor, but, but the Colonel being his usual crafty, canny self, because he didn't really want Elvis to do very much television. He didn't want him to be overexposed. He only wanted him to be on television enough for people to come by tickets to his live performances. So if Elvis were shown... wiggling that was okay but to to censor the bottom half so that people thought oh my goodness what nasty thing is he doing that i've got to see i have to plunk down my money to buy a ticket to see him live in concert well that's genius
0: jumping to the colonel for a minute what was he like up close
1: oh he was he could well he was a very polarizing character i mean he was he was extremes of, of character and of approach you never really knew what you were going to get he could be very charming and very funny or he could be he could just cut your legs off with what he would say so, just to be in his presence, uh, you felt somewhat privileged, but you also it's kind of like kind of like dancing with a grizzly bear. I mean, you're honored and thrilled to be dancing with the grizzly, but you know that at any second he could <laughs> eat you. So, uh, you know, it was quite quite an experience. I um uh, when I first met him, I approached him at at a table in the coffee shop at the Hilton, and I was really there to, to get him to participate in this other book. But uh, I went over and introduced myself. He was there with Lori Morgan and her mother, and he had booked uh, Lori's father, George Morgan, uh, a, a Grand Ole Opry star, many years before. And so he was in a good mood. He really he liked to reminisce about his carnival days. He started in carnivals in this country, and uh, he also booked uh, after he made Eddie Arnold a big a big name. He booked uh, Grand Ole Opry stars for quite a while until he found Elvis. So that's what he liked to talk about. He didn't like to talk about Elvis uh, for, I think, a couple of reasons. But I went over and introduced myself as a person who had written Alan Fortas's book. And the colonel would call Alan every Sunday to see how he was doing while he was dying of cancer. And I was at Alan's home a couple of times when the colonel called, and Alan was crazy about him. And people, again, people really loved the colonel. and were amused by him, thought he was a genius, or just an evil, terrible, horrible person. (laughs) But Alan really liked him, and so I brought up Alan's name, and I said, Alan, got you to sign a picture for me, which I have on display, and and, uh, I just thought, I I just want to get to know him, and I'll ease into this request. So he invited me to sit down and order anything off the menu, and he was, again, in this very good mood. And I was there for three hours, and I could see that he really... It wasn't the right time to bring this up because he was really kind of basking in this glow that he had acquired during this conversation with the Morgans. So I thought, I'll go home. Now that I've met him, I'll go home and write him a letter with my request. And the next day, although he had not asked me where I was staying, the phone rang in my hotel room very early, and it was the colonel. He had tracked me down. And he called, he said, to to offer me tickets to another show that was playing at the Hilton. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, first of all, you know, my mind is reeling, like, why? how and why did he track me down? I mean, what does this really mean? But it seems like he wants to be friends, and I I have to come clean on why, why I'm here. So it was then that I told him that I was writing this book with Billy Smith and Lamar Fike and, and um, uh, Marty Lacker, and that I wanted his participation And, oh, his tone changed. You know, he got, he got, he was very disappointed, I think. And he said, well, there are too many Elvis books already. And, you know, I don't, I don't talk about Elvis and, uh, which he had not the, the previous day. But I came home and wrote him that letter and he answered and, um, he didn't. He still didn't want to do anything about Elvis, and uh, I had I said perhaps this would help you set the record straight, because a lot of people really hated him when Elvis died at the age of 42, he hated the colonel. So he wrote back, and he said he slept good at night, and he didn't need to set the record straight, and he said, but if you're out here again, you let me know. So, of course, I went back <laughs> for a second and then a third time. And, you know, I'm still not precisely sure why he saw me each time and took me for a meal each time. Uh, And each meeting was about three hours. But uh, it it might be a situation of just keeping tabs on what I was up to, what I was writing, kind of keep your friends close and your enemies closer, although I wasn't really an enemy. But uh, I'm not really sure. But he was a very enigmatic figure. Um He let me in on a little bit on a little bit of his history, his past, the last time that I saw him, and um I had affection for him at the same time. He scared the water out of me
0: in the end. How much money did he make off of Elvis?
1: Oh, I don't think we can possibly even know because he had all of these side deals with with everyone he worked with, with the movie studios, with r c a records, especially. Um, So he always ended up getting more out of a deal for Elvis than Elvis got out of a deal for Elvis. And he was paid in ways that that aren't traceable sometimes.
0: How did he get to serve in the U.S. Army if he wasn't an American and didn't hold an American passport?
1: Well, he he came over here in 1929, and that June he uh, enlisted we took foreign nationals as long as they, were, they pledged that they would become U.S. citizens. So you'll find him in the 1930 census as being a, res, a citizen of Holland, his parents both being born in Holland. And uh, he did change his name to, to, to Thomas Parker. He wasn't using the, the Andrew yet, Thomas Andrew Parker, which he came to use later. The Andrew really being the Americanized version of his Dutch name, Andre, Andreas. But what happened was he served in Hawaii for two years, and then he transferred to Pensacola. But while he was in Pensacola, he went AWOL when the circus was in town. (laughs) (laughs) And so he never had to become an American citizen, and he never did.
0: So was he aware of Elvis's drug use?
1: Oh, Sure he had spies in elvis's entourage uh and he particularly had spies in elvis's entourage once things began to get very very tense between them which was in the mid 60s when elvis was really enslaved in a, a chain of pretty horrific films and he was deeply unhappy about that you know he just elvis just stopped speaking to the colonel for long periods of time but the colonel had these spies who who told him told the colonel everything that was going on and uh, the drug use was was already uh, out of control by the mid the 60s. I mean, it was uppers for, uh, to be able to work and downers to be able to sleep. And then, of course, when he wasn't making movies, he went back to personal appearances in Las Vegas and then out on the road again in the 70s. And there were times it was his performance was just. Pitiful. I mean, he was, he was exhausted. That, that schedule in Las Vegas was literally a killer. I mean, he it was, it was the first artist to play Las Vegas seven days a week, doing two shows and on occasion three shows. And then when he's not there, he's out on the road. I mean, who could do that? Who could keep that up? That's superhuman.
0: I want to read, it's a little bit long, but I want to read uh, on page 294, um, you do the six stages of Elvis's drug use. And uh, the, the only way you can get the impact of this is to to read the whole thing, if you don't mind. Um, by now, Elvis's drug regimen for the road was so specific that Dr. N- uh, Nikopolis is that the way you pronounce it? Yes. And who was Dr. Nikopoulos?
1: He was Elvis' personal physician. Traveled with him? Yes.
0: And you say he prescribed the drug use in six stages. Stage one, administered at 3 p.m. when Elvis arose, consisted of a voice shot. What was a voice shot?
1: Oh, just to to make sure that he could sing as well as he possibly could. What
0: was in a voice shot, did you know?
1: Oh, I can't remember. I have to read my own book to, to see that. Probably vitamin B, I would guess. Uh,
0: I doesn't mention it right here. By a okay. doctor, is it Ganem? Ganem. Ganem. Um, he had concocted three appetite suppressants, medication for dizziness, a laxative, a vitamin, and herbs, and testosterone. Who was that doctor?
1: Doctor Ganem was a doctor in Las Vegas who ran a clinic. Um, He also tended to a a lot of the stars who played uh, in, in Las Vegas.
0: Why did he need dizziness drugs, laxatives? I mean, that's obvious. Vitamins, herbs. I mean, what was the whole point of that?
1: Well, by the time Dr. Ghanem was seeing him, by the time he was in Las Vegas, Elvis was really in deep, deep trouble with pharmaceuticals. So... He was starting to pack on an enormous amount of weight. His health was failing. He had taken so many pills over such a long length of time that his liver was, a, was becoming... Uh, uh, it wasn't working as well as it should have. His bowels didn't work as well as they should have. Uh, and that's part of that is from being on such high doses of medication. So just to keep him going, to, again, this schedule that was unreal... Uh, just to get him up and get him going and bring him down so he could sleep and start it all over again the next day. Is, uh, I mean, you know, Boy George had this line about fame. He said, fame is the impending, glittering disaster. So it changes the balance in your life forever.
0: I want to read stage and- two. Go ahead.
1: Yes. Well, just Elvis is the epitome of
0: that. Stage two of this six-stage daily operation was delivered an hour before he went on stage, was made up of another voice shot, a decongestant with codeine, an amphetamine, a pill for vertigo, and Dilaudid. What was all that supposed to do to him? Yeah,
1: Dilaudid. That was Elvis's drug of choice. Unfortunately, that was Tammy Wynette's drug of choice. Um, it, Dilaudid is a drug that was reserved for st- end-stage cancer patients. Uh, Elvis Elvis was a very nervous, uptight person, and he was always looking for something to take the edge off. And Dilaudid made him happy. It's you know, it's a it's kind of it, it's an opioid, really, in, in the acceptable form.
0: Stage three. Time just before his performance included more dilated dexedrine and caffeine.
1: Yeah, so stuff to get up, stuff to come down. You know, this kind of a speed ball, but with some residual coming down. So it made him it energized him, but, but took the edge off of his anxiety.
0: Stage four, designed to bring him down after the show, included a pill to lower his blood pressure, some diluted Demerol. A sedative and an antihistamine,
1: yeah, yeah, so uh, he was a mess, you know,
0: what did all that do Emerald. to his What did that do to his body over time?
1: Well, it wrecked it, it wrecked it at at forty two he was he was really like a much older man, he had heart trouble, although some of that could have been inherited. His father had heart trouble and died two years after he did. Uh, but he he was way out of shape. He could his his metabolism was shot. His sleep schedule was shot. Uh, he was a wreck.
0: There's more here at bedtime. Elvis received stage five, placidil, a quaalude, three additional sedatives, an amphetamine, a blood pressure pill, and a laxative. If he couldn't sleep, he advanced to stage six, made up of amitol a hypnotic sleeping pill, and more Quaaludes. Who yeah. who administered these drugs to him?
1: Dr. Nacopoulos. He lost his license for it. How
0: did he lose his license?
1: Oh, as state board. He, he, he was put on trial. How did they find out? Oh, the prescriptions. I mean, I can't quote. It's in the book how many prescriptions he wrote for Elvis Presley. It's just staggering, but he also wrote for other stars. You know, I think Dr. Nick was probably a good man who got caught up in the celebrity and got caught up in trying to please his patient and lost his way.
0: As long as we're on the drug story, because I introduced you by saying, uh, telling the briefly, very briefly, the story of uh, his visit to Richard Nixon. Can you fill in the blanks on that? It was seven years before he died.
1: Yes, December of 1970. It was a period when he was uh, really terribly upset. He was having physical problems. He was having eye problems. He had glaucoma. He was fighting with Colonel Parker. He was fighting with his father uh, because he was spending money, outrageous amounts of money on cars and and, uh, guns, uh, buying trips, um, gun buying trips, Uh, mercedes his friends. Uh, just whatever. And and Vernon was allegedly the business manager, although he wasn't really much of a business manager. He was really in the, the pocket of the Colonel. But, uh, so Elvis was fighting with everybody. And, um, he was also fighting with his wife. They were getting ready to put down a deposit on a new house in Beverly Hills, even though the marriage was kind of shaky. And, um, he he did something he hardly ever did, which was that he 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 took action instead of kind of numbing himself out. And he was obsessed with the idea of having a narcotics badge. He had he had begun collecting police badges, and he really wanted a badge for uh, to be a narc <laughs> because all of Elvis's drug use was prescription drugs. So he he was often fantasy land a lot, and he wore a police uniform sometimes he would even go out and stop cars in front of grace i mean he really was kind of out of his mind at times and so he thought he should have this this badge and he had a um a contact he had a friend who had contacted the bureau of narcotics and dangerous drugs and he wanted this badge so he got on a plane by himself uh to go to washington Uh, eventually he picked up a couple of other of his cronies uh but he went to washington to uh, to get this badge and so <laughs> on the plane he, well he also wanted to find a girl that he had met and he didn't know how to find her except that she had lived in washington so he had this kind of you know woozy plan but on the plane he wrote a letter to president richard nixon in which he said he was a concerned america american and the country was in bad shape he said you know with the hippies and the drug culture and the black panthers and the Students for a democratic society and he said that uh, he had done an in-depth study this is from his letter now i'm quoting from his letter that he had done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques but if nixon would make him a federal agent he could be of great service to the nation since none of those threats to the american ways of life considered him an enemy so he wrote uh, this is the quote i would love to see you just to say hello if you're not too busy And then he dropped the letter off at the White House gates on the way to his hotel. Well, he got a call. And indeed, the president saw him, although at first he was baffled by it and didn't think it was such a great idea. And some folks on his staff convinced him this probably was a good idea. And so um, Nixon... There are pictures of them in the, the the White House and the Oval Office, and I think it's the most requested photo of the Nixon archives. Um, so Nixon gave gave him a few trinkets and posed for the photos and, uh, you know, put in a good word for him. And eventually he got his badge, which became his most prized physical possession.
0: Another quote from his letter to Richard Nixon that I think he dropped off at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. Uh. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques. And I'm right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. Did he want to do the most good to stop drugs? And and was he taking drugs at that time? And did he ever realize how crazy it was, of all the drugs that his doctors were giving
1: him? He had rationalized that since a doctor gave him all this stuff, it was okay. You know, if he took street drugs, which he never did, well, that was very, very bad. So in his mind, he was going after the the people who sold street drugs to, to American youth. Now, I should interject that this is a kid who grew up with comic books, Elvis Presley, and saw himself in a way kind of as a comic book hero at times. And uh, I think just in the kind of drug-fueled haze, all of this got confused. And he did want his badge, but he did see himself as perhaps rising to the occasion in in a country that he hardly recognized anymore.
0: Got some dates here, just to fill in the blanks. Uh, His mother, Gladys, died at age 46 in August of 1958. His father, Vernon, didn't die until 1979 after he had died, two years after Elvis died. He was 63. Elvis was 42, as you said, and died in August, August 16th of 1977. And his daughter, Lisa Marie, is still alive at age 54. Go back to the parents. I know there's the house in Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, And it does have a connection to C-SPAN because Comcast, our biggest supporter, had their first cable system in Tupelo. So we've got Comcast, Tupelo, and Elvis, Tupelo. And that little house... You got you got to spend what? $15 to get in it. And and <laughs> have you been to that little house?
1: I have. I haven't been to it since uh about the early 80s. But uh, it it looks different now. It looks pretty gentrified uh in comparison to when the Presleys lived there when it really was s- such a poor poor dwelling. Uh, and all that area now has been built up and, and commercialized in the sense it's it's made for tourists now. But uh, it is the actual house, yes. Well,
0: if you go to the Richard Nixon Library and Museum, there's his little house there, which is not a whole lot bigger. Um, do you think that that visit to the Oval Office, or what impact did it have? Again, on I mean, it's interesting that that photo is the most requested from the National Archives. Uh, and the, and, mm-hmm. and I would ask you, why do you think it is? at this still at this well, stage
1: yes well i think for a couple of reasons first of all it's a funny photo uh elvis looks kind of like dracula he's in this cape and he's got his tinted glasses and his belt and he he looks like uh you know he's so, some kind of fantasy hero and there's nixon looking very establishment but also thrilled to to be with elvis presley so uh it, it, it's just a two worlds meeting, uh, and two uh, it, it, implausible uh, public figures meeting and enjoying each other. You know, Nixon was asked much later uh, what he thought of Elvis, and he liked him quite a bit. He, I think, he was surprised how much he liked him, and and, uh, and Elvis respected him. And so it was, it was a genuine meeting of of people who found some place in the middle that where they could uh, visit.
0: You've written a lot of other books. And I just want to ask you a little bit about each one of them. Your first book, uh, was it Dolly? Dolly Parton?
1: It was, yes. It came out in 1978, a long time ago. My very first book,
0: yes. And, and why did you write the book, and what's the her impact on our culture?
1: Well, I wrote it because I had done a cover story on her. I spent several days with her in her home, in Nashville for a magazine that is now defunct, but it was called Country Music Magazine, and it was the serious magazine that covered the genre at the time. And she was making a bid from straight country music to to pop music, to crossover music, and that was anathema in Nashville. And she kept saying, you know, I'm not leaving country. I'm just taking it with me. But people were very upset about that in Nashville because she was looking for outside management and outside booking. And nobody had done that to the extent that she was planning on doing. So this was a very controversial move. And uh, when I wrote this story, uh, a a small publishing company in New Hampshire saw that. And uh, it was a husband and wife team. And they decided they wanted a biography of Dolly for their for their fall lineup. So. But they contacted the magazine, and I was plugged into that because I had done that story. But I had been watching her very closely from the time I was a teenager when she was on the Porter Wagoner show because, well, two reasons. She was from Sevierville, Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains, and my mother was from Sevierville, Tennessee. And I have cousins there today, family there today, and had visited there uh, when I was a small child. So I felt a real affinity toward it. And I was also impressed with her when I was a kid because I also played guitar and wrote songs. Not, not very well, mind you, but, but I did. And I saw her on there, and she was four years older than I was. And I thought, wow, you know, this woman really knows what she's doing. These songs are good. She knows how to finger pick that guitar. She's not just strumming it. And I think this is a real mountain artist. And so I followed her pretty closely.
0: What has been your reaction to the fact that she spent millions of dollars on books to give away?
1: Well, gosh, you know, she's kind of a mountain miracle, this woman. And, uh, uh, you know, she wanted her father couldn't read. I met her parents. Her mother was very strong willed. Her father less so, but he couldn't read. And she did this in part to honor him. And, uh, gosh, what a contribution to uh, the culture, right?
0: Well, she's... um, given books through the mails, free books to children from birth until they uh, begin participating in school. Uh, and there's yes. lots and yes. lots of money. All right. Another book is uh, the, again, I'm old enough to remember this story, but tell the story of, of uh, Jessica Savage.
1: Oh, Jessica Savage. Well, that's still my favorite of my books. I don't think it's my best book. I think the Colonel the is my best book, but still my favorite book. Uh, Jessica Savage, uh, became the weekend anchor at NBC Television News. Uh, shortly after I got out of Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, she went in. On, she she got to NBC in 1977, and I had graduated in '74. And when I was at Columbia, they kept steering me into broadcasting, and I thought, Oh gosh, I don't think I have the stamina for it. Uh, usually, uh, at that time, uh, the women had a if you could even get hired, women had a shorter career than men. You had to move around the country a lot to move up the ladder, and I was close to my family and didn't want to do that. I just didn't think I had what it took, That I was a print person. But I watched her very closely because she was a kind of bridge in, in broadcast news from the Walter Cronkite kind of buttoned up or John Chancellor kind of just the facts kind of journalism to uh, to a little bit more of personality journalism and what was then referred to as happy talk, although she wasn't doing much of that with, with the co but. It was personality-based. So here was this beautiful woman who was brought in as the weekend anchor and also given uh, an assignment on on Capitol Hill to legitimize putting her in the anchor seat, which meant that she was really resented by a lot of people at NBC who had had been climbing the ladder, hoping that once they worked their way up, they would be rewarded with an anchor seat. And here she is brought in at 30 and, and plunked right down in there. But I thought she had a very compelling style. And I also watched her closely, and, and personally, my, she was my father's favorite, and it was something that my father and I did together. We watched her together. It was a kind of bonding experience for us. But, but I knew enough about how it worked in broadcast news that I saw she was not advancing as she should have been, and I wondered what the story was there, what was going on. And she had some, some really t- personal tragedies during those years as well, including the suicide of her second husband. Um, and then she seemed to be reassigned and never to the, the the peak assignments. And I just thought, gosh, you know, what has happened here? And then she died very tragically in a car drowning accident in 1983. And again, kind of like uh, with the colonel, I just thought I have to what is the story? I have to know what it is. I have to write this.
0: We'll go back to the, her death. I mean, one of the suspicions uh, they had was drugs and, and, uh, explain how, she, how, um, where she was and where this accident happened. And why?
1: Well, she had had a very unfortunate and embarrassing, uh, incident on air, not long before her death in which she was by that time doing these little one minute capsules on NBC, uh, interspersed uh, in primetime news or primetime programming, I should say. And, um, she 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 took them very seriously and they were timed down to the second. But she was altered. She was slurring her words. She she went over time. The computer cut her off before she finished. And she it was apparent to anyone who watched that broadcast that something was really wrong there. And so not a, long after that, um, I mean, by a period of weeks, she was dead in a canal in Pennsylvania. Now, she did use cocaine. She had had an operation on her nose because she was such a heavy user that it uh, ate through the cartilage in her nose, which was a common kind of surgery for people who used coke a lot in the 80s. But, you know, that was the glamour drug. and She ran in glamorous circles. But that had nothing to do with her death. She was simply a passenger in a car driven by her date, who was a New York Post executive. And they had driven down from New York uh, to Bucks County, Pennsylvania, for a kind of romantic uh, getaway, a dinner at a country inn there, uh, Chez Odette's, And uh, that restaurant is no more. But, but uh, I could see how that accident happened, because if you approached it off of the main street there, you could only get in one way, and you really could only get out one way. So. You had to cross over a little bridge and drive past the restaurant and then park in the parking lot. But it looked from the parking lot as if you could find a shortcut out from the back of the parking lot. And the night of their deaths, uh, it was storming, raining, and visibility was poor. And her date, um, whose name was Martin Fishbein, um, drove up a towpath to the Delaware Canal, Thinking he saw the lights of town, and he could just take this shortcut, and he drove right into the canal.
0: In my memory, is the car turned upside
1: down? That's right. They were trapped. He was killed instantly, and she and her dog Chewy, a husky, were trapped inside and, and uh, struggled to get out. And of course, there was there was no getting out. Uh, it had rained for quite a while there, and there was a lot of, I guess, silt or mud in the bottom of that canal, which precluded being able to force the door open, and uh, they drowned.
0: As I read all, I mean, not all of your books, but I certainly read about them and read but the book on the colonel, it seemed to me that there's a similarity. There are a bunch of writers like this that have written tons of material on one person, kind of one person, let's say Elvis and the colonel. And My question is, when you watch, say, for somebody like, Robert Caro, who's done 3,000-plus pages on LBJ and is written up all the time in the New York Times and other places. Uh, has Over the years, have they treated somebody like that differently than they treat somebody like you that's re- writing about culture and doing the same kind of uh, research and work?
1: Well, you know, I think the danger in concentrating on one figure throughout several books is you almost lose your perspective. I mean, you're so close to it, you're so deep down in it that you can't see some of the obvious things. Um, And sometimes, if you have a lot of access, you tend to pull your punches because you don't want to affect the very people who've given you access. So trying to find that balance uh, is, is, I, I think, a very difficult thing. I'm working on a personal memoir now about someone I was very close to who died prematurely, um, someone who was uh, who struggled with mental illness and uh, addiction, uh, pre- again, prescription drugs. Um, a, a, a pain clinic had over-prescribed her for a number of years after routine surgery. And, you know, it comes to a point where you want to tell all of the truth, but you also don't want to shame certain other people of the family. And so trying to find that, allegiance to the truth and to your subject in my case my closest friend but also well there are a lot a lot of different considerations you know as a younger journalist I would have said um, uh, journalism is the only thing you know it doesn't matter if people people's lives are affected by this um, Truth, truth wins above all but then you know your words have consequences so finding that line, that balances the difficult thing. You know, Albert Goldman wrote the first really big, thorough, post-Elvis death biography. And Albert Goldman was vilified for that book because he didn't understand Elvis. He didn't like him. He didn't understand gospel music, which was closest to Elvis's heart. He didn't really get rock and roll. He was a jazz guy. And although this is a mammoth biography that he wrote... He could, You see, he can't stand the guy. So, of course, we don't get any balance about the art or, or the historic figure. And navigating all of these little, these main roads and pathways that come off of the main road of writing biography is, you know, it's sociology and psychology and it's truth finding and telling and connecting the roots of the tree to all the rest of it. And, you know, it's. It, I think it's the most difficult form of journalism there is. I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure that I really rise to the occasion at times, but I do give it my best.
0: I have to tell you, somebody who years ago started out as a disc jockey, that mm-hmm. when I read in your book that the Jordanaires backed up Eddie Arnold, I about fell off my chair. I had no idea.
1: Yes. You know, uh, it's interesting that the, the colonel... Um, the colonel tried to put the same team of people in place, although he didn't have much to do with Jordan he, he, he With this blueprint with Eddie Arnold, where he had the Oberbach brothers publishing, and he had RCA, he had William Morris, and he kept to that same group of players after he got Elvis. And what he would say, and, and the colonel was a very loyal person, and the first thing I heard him say, well, when I asked him really kind of about uh, why he was interested in me, and he said, I want your loyalty and your friendship. Now, loyalty is a, is a loaded word sometimes. But he kept the same team, uh, and part of it, according to Mr. Aberbach, Julian Aberbach, is because the colonel really didn't know what he was doing. And his, his, because he came out of carnivals and fairs, he bluffed a lot of his way through negotiations in the early days. And by keeping to the same team, they could kind of keep his secrets and help him uh, it, it, from other people finding out how little he really did know. Uh, that's fascinating to me.
0: What other figures did uh, the colonel represent besides Eddie Arnold?
1: Well, his first job out of the carnivals was being a promotion man for Gene Austin, the crooner who was kind of down on his luck by the time that uh, uh, the colonel found him in the late 30s. He was attempting a, a tent show across the country, and of course that's a, almost the same thing as a carnival. So uh, the colonel was a, was a brilliant promotion guy. He really knew how to, how to get the word out, and he was tireless about traveling in a truck and plastering up signs and uh, you know he was just he was the best out there but the tent show folded pretty quickly and, and uh, parker then became the he became the dog catcher the humane society agent for hillsborough county florida for tampa and while he was doing that he booked country music shows to raise money for the humane society and to start what may be the first pet cemetery in america and in, in that way, he brought in Roy Acuff and uh, Pee Wee King, and it was Roy Acuff who told him about Eddie. And he worked for Eddie with Eddie for quite a few years, uh, with uh, taking 25% of everything that Eddie, Eddie made for exclusivity. And then Eddie found out that he wasn't being so exclusive, and that he was joining with Hank Snow uh, to book shows. And they had a big blow-up in, in Las Vegas. But Eddie kept him for his booking agent after that, and so he 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 booked Minnie Pearl. He booked uh, um, the Duke of Paducah. There's a name from the old country music archives. Um, he also booked uh, show dates for um, Marty Robbins. And uh, if you have a second, I wanted to read you a little story that Marty told me about just how clever he was and how people thought the colonel would do almost anything.
0: Hold, hold on to that just for a second, because I do need, right. for those who are <clears throat> not as old as I am, who were the Jordanaires? I, that's, that was, I didn't ask you that in the first place.
1: Well, the Jordanaires were a quartet, uh, that started in gospel and they were fantastic. And Elvis loved gospel. It was his favorite kind of music. And he, it's something he continued to sing. Uh, he made two gospel albums, um, or some gospel albums. Uh, he, uh, he continues to sing it to relax in Las Vegas uh, with with his guys there, and when he made uh, pop recordings, he wanted the Jordanaires to back him, and they kind of invented the the fillers that you hear on those early Presley records about do not do up specifically I don't think but other s- syllables or sounds that filled in the background when Elvis was singing, so, and they also appeared and in, in, um, in, uh, with him on Ed Sullivan and in, uh, uh, in, in at least one film so. Uh, but primarily known or made their mark as as uh, gospel singers.
0: Um, other than having the worst toupee in the history of country music, singers who was Hank Snow?
1: <laughs> well, Hank Snow was a Canadian uh, country singer who became quite popular in the U.S. He was diminutive but a big ego, and um, uh, he was a, a pretty. He was a. A growing star, a rising star, and the colonel made him an even bigger star, um, promoting him in a company that they they put together uh, to tour primarily the South. And uh, Hank, <laughs> if you'd ask him about the colonel years later, he'd say, that word is a curse word to me. He wouldn't talk about him, uh, essentially because he claimed that Colonel Parker had cheated him out of half of Elvis by by presenting uh, or or getting together two contracts, one that signed Elvis just to the colonel and one that signed Elvis to their joint company, which is what he thought was going to happen. But the colonel pulled a fast one on him, he said, and and signed him just to the colonel.
0: And before you tell the story, who was Marty Robbins?
1: Well, Marty Robbins was a country singer who had some pop success as well. I think he's best known for uh, the song El Paso uh at, at, which was at the time uh one of the longest uh songs ever be, be played on commercial radio but also a grand Ole Opry star and uh a much-loved uh, country figure
0: what's your story
1: my story is that uh, he told he told me about how the colonel was a good man because he got him out of a contract that he couldn't get out of uh for six years with a big percentage and uh Uh, It cost him only $1,000 to get out of it because the colonel went to bat for him. And uh, I asked him about, uh, was the colonel really as outrageous as a lot of people said he was, particularly in in pulling stunts when he was booking acts? He said, I don't know about the stunts, but I've heard a few things that were funny. I heard that Tom went down into a small town in Mississippi, and he, he bought the big billboard on each end of town. And on each billboard, it said, it's coming. That's all it said. Ten days later, he changed it to say, it'll be here, December 4th. That's all you could see you know, on both sides of town. Now, by the time the date was announced, everybody got to wondering, what is it? What's going to be here? So the time came for it to be on stage, and the theater was packed. The money had already been put in the black bag. The back door was open, and the driver was in the car. And Colonel Tom goes in and pulls the curtain back, and there's a big sign that says, it's gone. <laughs> and Colonel Tom went out the back door, and that's all. And he chuckled as we are, and he said, I really don't know that that's true. But that's how far people would say that Colonel Tom would go to get some deal put over. He said he knew every angle.
0: How much money did Tom Parker, Colonel Tom Parker, lose gambling?
1: Well, one of the executives for the Hilton uh, went on record as saying that the colonel was good for a million dollars a year. But which was a heck of a lot of money in the 70s. But I I imagine it was more than that, because uh, Elvis played a lot of dates that he really didn't know he was going to have to pay, or play, I should say, because he was paying for the colonel's gambling debts. And the colonel, you know, back to uh, Julian Oberbach, the the music publisher, he said to me that... um, The the crew really was just the most wonderful guy, uh, fair, a joy to work with until he got to Las Vegas, until he found Las Vegas. He said, and then he he owed money to people that you can't owe money to. And so he had to compromise himself. And of course, the way he had to settle those debts was through his only client.
0: Somewhere in your book, I think it was in your book. You can tell me if it was. If it wasn't, I'm sure you know about it. Um, I found that Caroline Kennedy was sent by the New York Daily News to cover Elvis's funeral. True. And did she ever get a byline out of that?
1: I don't know if she got a byline out of it, but she was there. And she did cover it. Um, I don't know if she was bylined. Seems like she would have been. But uh, the the Presley family didn't quite understand why she was there. I think they thought she was there as a representative of the family and not as a journalist. And there was some talk about how Elvis's, if not the the family directly, uh, Elvis's entourage felt a little used by that. Um, Of course, I could see that both ways.
0: The colonel had a relationship with President Lyndon Baines Johnson, it says, uh, you know, before he got to be president, I gather, uh, for nine years of correspondence. What was that all about?
1: Yes, he did. And uh, he met him through a a country music booking agent in the Washington area named Connie B. Gay, who knew a lot of politicians. And uh, Connie invited him to a party where the colonel zeroed in on Lyndon Johnson. He was always looking for somebody he could take advantage of in one way or another. And for a guy who was in the country illegally, um, to have a fellow like Lyndon Johnson in your friendship cabinet was a very fine thing. And he ingratiated himself with to, to Johnson. He offered to bring Eddie Arnold, with whom he was still friendly, to the Johnson Ranch in 1959 when Elvis was overseas uh, in the army. He brought uh, Eddie Arnold to. To the Johnson Ranch to help entertain the Mexican president uh, Mateos and um, and made sure he was photographed with him and with Harry Truman and he kept this friendship up and in fact uh, Johnson's daughter Linda visited one of Elvis' movie sets a few years later so uh, you know I don't know what happened beyond that but um, the colonel had two mottos one was you either con or you get conned. And the other one was always have something better than a contract. So he was always looking for higher ups who could do favors for him in exchange for something like letting somebody come on a movie set or providing entertainment in one way or another, like with Eddie. So that that is one area I would really like to know more about, uh, that friendship between the colonel and, and, uh, Lyndon Johnson. I know you knew the Johnson family. Uh, this is really something that, uh, intrigues me, particularly since the colonel had, uh, or should have had certain files that, uh, don't seem to be in place. So I've always wondered if in either putting Elvis in the army when he, he could have either put him in the special services or kept him out of the service, um, if there were some kind of exchange of of files for services.
0: When did it first become known that Colonel Tom Parker wasn't Colonel Tom Parker?
1: Well, a couple of people had suspected it through the years who worked with him, particularly at RCA, because the colonel would never take Elvis out of the country. They would talk about big European tours, but the colonel would always have an excuse for why he couldn't go. Uh, why Elvis couldn't go when there were plenty of people to take him, but because the colonel had no passport and it never, it took me a year to get a letter from the State Department confirming that he had never attempted to be to become a citizen. Um, people suspected that uh, perhaps the colonel had a, a citizenship problem, but it wasn't until uh, after Elvis died again in this big lawsuit about. Uh, Uh, the state of Tennessee forcing the estate to to sue him for fiduciary overreaching, that he finally came clean in legal papers. And he said, uh, this is when they were attempting to to sue him in federal court. And he he answered, you can't sue me in federal court because I'm not a U.S. citizen. And furthermore, uh, my name is Andreas Cornelis von Kauk, and uh, I was born in Breda, Holland in 1909. I came here and joined the U.S. Army in 1929, and in doing so, I forfeited my Dutch citizenship. And then, as he told Variety, the magazine, uh, "I'm literally a man without a country." So he was arguing they, they couldn't touch, they couldn't even <laughs> deport him. I mean, he couldn't even be sent back anywhere because he he didn't he didn't he was stateless. You know, that's that's a curious thing and uh, a, a conscious decision, I think.
0: In your reporting on uh, Elvis Presley and Colonel Tom Parker, where did you physically go to get this story? How many different places?
1: Oh, well, I, in writing the Colonel, I went to Holland. I wanted to try to find his family, which he had pretty much deserted. Uh, once he got out of the U.S. Army, he had sent an allotment back to his mother over there. And then after he came out, He um, after he got his honorable discharge for for being a uh, well, the, the official army papers say that he suffered from psychosis acute on basis of constitutional psychopathic state and emotional instability. And once he came out from that, he later told his brother that he was too poor to even write to them. But he took great pains to ignore his family, family in Holland until they recognized his photograph in a picture with Elvis getting off a train when Elvis came back from the army in 1960, and the family began stepping up efforts to reach him. And he was I have a letter that he wrote to his nephew, which you could tell he's terrified. He says these letters are getting mixed up in the fan club mail, and, and the staff is asking, asking questions. He tried to keep this information quiet all of his life until he had to come clean in these legal papers. So I went to Holland. I traveled all around this country, uh, interviewing people all, all all through the country. And I spent six years on that book about the Colonel. It was enormously expensive, and uh, but gosh, what a ride! I mean, it's it's in, in some Elvis Presley's story is the quintessential American story. I think.
0: Wrapping it up. I need you to tell the story. I've, all my life, uh, people have said when you start talking about Elvis, didn't he die on the toilet? And then <laughs> you've got the complete description in your book. Explain what, what, what it was going on at near the end of his life and the day that he died. How did it happen?
1: Well, he, he had been taking s- such extreme amounts of medication, for so many years that it impacted his colon, which, which is a common occurrence. And so he, he carried literally trunks full of Fleet's enemas on the road. You can tell he's so dis, his midsection is so distended uh, in, in a lot of these pictures on stage. That poor guy had to have been miserable a lot of the time. And he was on a diet. He was he was embarrassed about his weight gain. He was about to go on a tour again. Um, he wanted to fit into his jumpsuits. Some of them he couldn't wear anymore. He was embarrassed about that. So he'd been on this kind of fad diet, uh, which meant really he was eating next to nothing, uh, and he was having difficulty. And he went into the bathroom in at Graceland uh, early in the morning of August 16th. 1977, um, not just to take care of business in there, but he had a reading chair in there, and he spent a lot of hours in that large bathroom. And um, he he his, his uh, girlfriend, Ginger Alden, was there, uh, went to sleep and woke up, and he was still in there and uh, checked on him, and um, he was in the floor. He had fallen, um, and his face was down in the car- shag carpet, And exactly what killed him, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever know precisely what killed him. He had his normal uh, regimen of drugs in his system uh, that you read out earlier. Um, But he also may have suffocated in that heavy shag carpet. Uh, There are some indications that that had happened. He had probably had a heart attack, uh, either brought on from straining or from... um, Uh, There's some indication also that he may have uh, confused a a drug that he got from his dentist uh, much earlier that morning, in the wee hours of the morning, to take on tour um, uh, for some tablets that he was allergic to have taken in um, abundance. And uh, I think the combination of it all, we'll never really know precisely what got him. but, But, you know, his body was worn out. It just couldn't take much more, to tell you the truth.
0: Did you see the body at any time?
1: I was among the first of the press who were allowed to view him in the the foyer. Uh, The the family and close people saw him in the music room, but when they opened it up uh, on August 17th, uh, Vernon Presley opened up a a public viewing, and they had Elvis right there in the foyer. And I was, you know, the interesting thing to me is, Uh, There weren't very many press people there initially. It was not a story that that, uh, the media thought was going to be uh, of massive interest, either because they thought Elvis was washed up um, or whether they thought this was a Southern story or I'm not really sure why, but there really were not very many press people there at all. And I was there for the Courier-Journal with uh, the Star columnist John Filiatro and Dick Grobe, who was head of security, came out and said members of the press who wished to view Mr. Presley line up behind these two, and it was, it was us. And so we were the first in, and um, you could get pretty close, you weren't allowed to stop. So you went in the door, you walked past him, made a quick turn and came right back out. And um, I, you know, I, I don't know what I thought he was going to look like. Uh, but my initial reaction was that it didn 't look like Elvis Presley uh, He looks kind of waxy and he looked uh, perhaps it was what he had on i don 't know what I thought he was going <laughs> i don 't know if I thought he was going to be in a jumpsuit i don't i don't know what I thought, but he was in a white business suit and a light blue dress shirt and a long silver tie, which was the way Vernon had dressed him uh, so but I was thinking, gosh, you know is this really Elvis or is one of Colonel Parker's jokes? So I sneaked back in line and I went through again. Again, you just couldn't, you couldn't stop at all. So it was very quick. I was just trying to take it all in. And I came out and I was still confused. And I tried to sneak in again. And the guy pulled me out. He said, no, you already been through twice. <laughs> so, uh, so I couldn't do that. But, um, you know, I now know that the circumstances of how long he had lain in the floor uh, he was discolored, and the mortician had to do quite a lot of work to to uh, make him regain his color. Uh had a lot to do with the, the waxiness of his appearance. But some people uh, took that as hope that Elvis was still around and would, would make a big comeback once he got a, a long rest. But, but no, he's gone. He's left us.
0: Kind of the list of the Alana Nash books. First one, Dolly, 1978. Golden Girl, The Story of Jessica Savage, 1988, Elvis, Aaron Presley, Revelations from the Memphis Mafia, 1995, Behind Closed Doors, Talking with Legends of Country Music, 2003, The Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley, 2003, and then Baby, Let's Play House, Elvis Presley and the Women Who Loved Him, 2010. Alana Nash, uh, originally from Louisville, Kentucky?
1: Yes, I'm still here.
0: Thank you so much for your time. And the book, of course, that uh, she's written anew afterwards to is The Colonel, the extraordinary story of Colonel Tom Parker and Elvis Presley. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Mr. Lamb. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.